got a lot of the same type of constraints as we were talking about with, with my introduction to, to grappling. Like exactly. simplified it down to a space where it's very easy for the athletes to, to be successful. And then you can handicap them really easily as well by adjusting the distances so that if there's a difference in skill level, uh, you're going to be able to. And that's the beautiful about a constraints-led approach, man. It just, it allows everyone to be, to, to, to have a chance to learn. And yep. that's the biggest thing. In learning, again, it's not just, and obviously I want my athletes to succeed. I want my athletes to win. I want them to have that gratification. I want them to have that dopamine hit that, okay, I did it. But they also need to have, okay, I didn't do it. Okay, I lost. And it's okay. Uh, so, yeah, and using the constraints, you can go either way with that. And that's why I think it, it is definitely, especially from a team sports standpoint, with a, a developing athlete, with all different backgrounds, different skill levels, different strengths, different weaknesses, it's hands down one of the best changes I've ever made. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. Today my guest is James Smith from the U of Strength. So I became aware of James' work on Instagram where he posts lots of clips of various really unique games that he's using to prepare team sport athletes. Um, and then I saw him on uh, Joel Smith's podcast and he has a lot of ideas around how we're applying constraints-led approaches to the team sport environment that are really um, overlapping and interesting with the type of work that we're doing with Evolve Move Play. So I was really excited to get a chance to talk with him. It was a super fun conversation. James is a really enthusiastic guy. It's a lot of brilliant ideas around how we can be better as coaches, how we can prepare athletes better, and how we can create better humans through coaching. So without further ado, James Smith. So uh, James, um, real pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've been following your work a lot on, on, uh, on Instagram and you, you, you create so many fun and unique situations for your athletes to create that, that coupling with, um, you know, with perception and the ability to act that I think is really unique. I, I haven't seen too many other people who are, are putting it together in the same way in that team sport context. I've actually been able to take pieces of it um, and, and use it in our context. So one thing that, uh, you know, we do a lot of games and, and running and chasing each other. But one thing that we hadn't done was some of the mirroring drills that you're using, which so uh, I love the plyometrics that you put together where you're having people react to each other because obviously in the sport context, we're having to react. So um, just the other week, I, uh, I took my athletes out and or went to train with my, with my staff and um, we set up a game where we had two big trees that you can like run in and run through. And then uh, we had a space in between them. So we had the two athletes facing each other and a medicine ball. So then one athlete's the lead. They can either run 
they can run in the direction of either tree and then continue the route to another tree, loop back around or just come straight back, pick up a ball, throw it at the other guy. And the other guy just has to react and organize all these skills. Um, and that was incredibly uh, fun. Uh, it tapped into some really interesting things and it gets people out of this kind of super volitional kind of um, very thinking oriented control of movement. So I just wanted to share that with you and, uh, and no, that's awesome. comes up for you and, uh, and thinking about applying mirroring and how do you, how, how have you come up with this stuff and why do you use so much player interaction to, to work with your athletes? Yeah. Well, first, thanks for the opportunity to talk, Rafe. This is awesome. Uh, I've been following the podcast and I just, I love the message and we need more coaches. Uh, to, we need to reach, this message needs to reach more coaches. So thank you. Um, so first and foremost, I am a sport junkie. I love sports. That's my entire, my, my entire life, you know, from I was one years old to now I'm 32. I just, I love sport and I love watching any type of sport. I love movement. Um, and so basically I'm just, I'm trying to find, so to give the listeners context is that, so I have, I'm a small business owner. I own the U of strength. Uh, we work primarily with team sport athletes. We do uh, work with other athletes too, but primarily it's team sports. So that context is important. Um, but I think everything we talk about can be applied to a 55 year old woman could be applied to a golfer could be applied to it's the principles that are important and it's the human movement system that does not change. Um, but so team sport athletes, five years old, you know, to professional athletes and everywhere in between. Um, and so I basically try because I we run groups. Okay, so it's not something where I have one athlete at a time. So we have groups of anywhere from six to 15 kids and we train teams. So it could be 20 plus 20 plus um, athletes in a, in a group. Uh, but I try to find commonalities because a lot of these athletes are developing. All right. And so it's more about development than actual performance. 99.9% of the time when I'm with, uh, when I'm with these guys. Um, and so I'm just trying to find commonalities, uh, between all these different, you know, team sports. And so as this process, um, has been going on for the last three and a half years, um, I just, I just realized that everything I was doing was output, output, output. And I, that's 50% of the, uh, of the equation. We need the other 50%. It's the input and it's getting these, getting these athletes to understand it's the information, making that movement information coupling, in my opinion, is, is the game changer in putting them in to all these different situations, whether it's our one V ones where it could be, so our agility training. All right. And that's why uh, I'm doing these air. Um, Stop you for a second there, James. Yeah, I just want to clarify yep. for the audience the input output thing. Yeah. So, so um, what I'm hearing from you is that traditionally you and I think this is true of like this, the the industry in general. When you're in the gym, you're looking at the pattern that the athlete can output, right? What what they're doing, what they can do physically. So, what's the vertical leap? How much weight can they move? You know, what does the pattern look like when they do a cut? Yep. Um, but if the athlete doesn't have the ability to recognize incoming information that, that specifies what type of movement they should do in the sport context, um, all that physical capacity is sort of uh, not necessarily very applicable to the field. And so it's, 
you're, what I'm hearing you say is that a lot of this traditional approach to the training doesn't address getting the right inputs into the athlete to well, make it might, Rafe, it might, it might, the traditional approach might, but it's at the end of a program. So they'll follow this linear approach where it's, which obviously I don't agree with, mm -hmm. um, but they'll follow this linear approach where it's like, okay, we're going to prepare these kids. And for the last two weeks of the off season, okay, we might do some basic one V one stuff because we followed all of this perfect, this perfect model, uh, perfect technical model leading up to it. And I just, I just, I, I expose my athletes right from the start. Um, and so that input, um, in my opinion, it's just, that is, that's what's going to be so impactful because to give more context, a lot of my athletes are hockey because a lot of these hockey athletes, they are a one sport athlete from five years old. And if they're lucky enough to play collegiate or professional, um, so they lose that basic human functionality. Everything is on the ice. When they sprint, it's like they're skating. When they're walking, it's like they're skating. They just lose the basic human movement system skills. It's just, it's, it's, it's a completely, um, it's completely foreign to them. Um, so instead of following that traditional uh, output dominant, um, biomechanical dominant, um, I noticed that once we started getting that input or we're getting that human to human interaction, we are starting to train behaviors, intentions, and that is, even though we're not on the ice, putting them into a 1v2 situation on a basketball court or on a turf or on a pavement um, or even on a hill will change the environment, the surfaces. It's the behaviors, the attentions, that, that's what's transferring. That's what they're, they're, they're learning and that they're adapting to, and then they can take these, these experiences and apply it to whatever sport it may be. Um, but it's all about that human to human interaction. Um, and we do that from, you know, day zero. till the last time I get to see them, um, it, it's always, they're always coupled. It's always, it's always there. Yeah, that's awesome. So a bunch of stuff I wanted to dig in there. Um, one of the first things I wanted to address though, is this idea that like we start, we should start with game, right? We should start with something that has an element of game to it. So traditionally, like, uh, like I, I told you before, I come from a martial arts background, right? I started training Tang Sudo when I was six years old. So in a lot of martial arts, you'll see, especially traditional martial arts, you'll see this kind of, um, this approach where you say, do punches, right? And you're, you're going to be standing in a line with a bunch of other people punching the air. And you'll do that for an extended period of time until you get checked off in your belt level that you have a good structurally correct punch, right? And then maybe you'll get to punch a makiwara or a heavy bag, right? And you'll do combos and you'll put these things together. You'll do kata. And it might be a year, it might be two years before you're allowed to spar. Um, and so there's this idea there that you, that we have like a very sophisticated system of scaling the technical demands of the output, as you called it. But once we put them into the situation of actually sparring, um, a lot of times it's just kind of chaos. They have no, they have no preparation for how to scale force and then how to read an opponent. So, um, so what we've done with our work is we go the opposite way. We say, how do we, how do we create a 
game that you can play that's safe and gives you a chance of success that has a full resistance, full free play element to start with, then how do we scale that game as those technical capabilities and control increase? Um, and so we have, so we've, we've come up with this basic rule that generally the highest level of complexity that you can get whatever adaption you're looking for is the best place to train because you're getting more adaptive signaling across a broader set of signals. Right, so if I can get you better at change of direction in an agility drill where you're actually getting perception action coupling, um, that's going to be way, you're just going to get way more out of it. Right. If, the example I was give is like, if you, you know, you can do the splits or you can kick a high on a heavy bag and then try to kick someone actually in the head. It's like, you're still getting flexible, but you're getting a lot more than just flexible. Yeah. 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 No, I completely agree. Completely agree, and and and, and there is, there's always a time and place for uh, for for everything. And so I'm not the type of person, uh, or the type of coach, or the type of facilitator that it's this way. So there might be situations where I have a young athlete, all right. Um, and a lot of people to kind of back up just a little bit. A lot of people when we're doing this, it gets messy. Okay, it gets chaotic. All right, it might not look. Uh, like something you would see in a textbook, but sport sport doesn't look like something that would be you would see in a textbook. But but people have to understand that learning, all right, it is messy. It is nonlinear. It, kids are going to need it. They need time. Everyone is going to learn at different different rates. But with that being said, we might have this game. We call them problem solving activities, um, or we have game activities. They're two different uh, kind of two different. Uh, uh, design processes. Um, but we might have a kid doing something. And if he is constantly, or she, I should say, is constantly making mistakes, obviously from a psychological and emotional standpoint, I don't want them to get frustrated. I don't want that. I want them to understand it's okay to make mistakes, but if that is reoccurring and reoccurring, reoccurring, then, okay, maybe there's a, there's a time and place where I pull them out and I teach them, you know, more explicit, close tight uh, a drill give them some context but immediately after we throw them right back in to that perception action coupling that movement information coupling um and it's just it's just we've had so much when you let the the, the best thing is that when you let athletes be athletes great things happen and if you use you design you know a, a learning environment appropriately you know, if you want, you know, a constraints-led approach um, with your creative thought, um, it's really, really cool to see what some of these athletes, um, what they're capable of. Because I think that a lot of coaches, we really constrain, we really limit these athletes from what they really are potentially capable of doing. Yeah, I think um, over-limitation of athletes and, um, and, and feeling like you have to interfere is a major problem. Like I, I read uh, a great, uh, a great, book on physical culture from the 1930s, I think in Germany called uh, Reshaping Physical Education by Margaret Stryker. And she had this whole thing about like, basically trust the athlete, right? Like you, you, when you see a problem in somebody's development, like recognize that they're developing and, you know, don't be in too big of a hurry to change it. Because if you, um, what people don't realize about intervening in someone's athletic process is that there's also the potential that you're messing it up, that you're taking something away. It's a constraint, 100%, yeah. 
Yeah, so many people don't. It's and that's something I'm really trying to dive into because I'm a very passionate uh, coach. Um, uh, I get loud. Um, I'll jump into the activities with the kids. I love what I do. Yeah. Um, but there's a time in place, just like we, I was just talking about with, okay, are we going to be an open environment only compared to a closed environment? It depends. It's that, you know, that typical, it depends answer. Uh, and it's the same thing with feedback, with instructions. Um, if you're constantly, so I'm in a, I'm in a sport complex. All right. So I have my weight room, but then I also have access to 250,000 square feet of different turf court, outdoor turf space. So I get to see a lot of soccer, lacrosse, basketball, volleyball, field hockey, baseball, softball. I get to see it all. And it's amazing when you are practicing and coaches, whether it's, it's constant feedback, whether it's negative consequences because you didn't do something that was expected of you. Um, it's just, it blows my mind with it takes one experience, one word, one experience that can change the outcome of the athletes long-term athletic development. And that's what I'm trying, the message I'm trying to get across to coaches, it takes one, all right? Because when I was growing up, I can still remember one experience that arguably affected my entire high school and collegiate career because I was, a, I was a, a, an athlete, um, so I completely agree. Yep. Yeah, I have this, um, one of my central principles, I believe, in, in coaching is that we should, we should be like doctors. We should have the Hippocratic Oath, right? First, do no harm. And we should recognize that with our words, with the way that we interact with people, we, we, it's not like a, it's not a one-way street where whatever we can do can only make the thing better. We also have the power to, to impact them negatively. And I think that uh, there's a lot of callousness towards that and, and a lack of recognition of how, how easy it is actually to, um, to interrupt an athlete's proper self-organization through excessive cueing or, you know, uh, incorrect cueing or the wrong emotional environment. I think that's really, uh, misunderstood is how much the emotional support actually has to do with the, the, the growth of the athlete. You can have the best um, technical development model in the world, um, but if you're beating your athletes down all the time, most of them are not going to survive. And, and Yeah, or, and if they're over-relying on you, the yeah. minute that they're not with you or the minute that they're in their sport, you can't have that reliance. You can't have – it just it does not work that way. Um, and that's just something that it's just a lot of coaches have a hard time and I'm guilty of it. You know, I went through that process. Uh, you know, I, I, I was that coach. Um, me too. But I definitely say it again. I said me too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's just, you gotta have that, that light bulb moment, that aha moment saying, okay, am I providing my athletes the best opportunity to succeed? And it's just that type of approach does not work, especially for everyone, but especially for a young developing athlete. Um, it does not work. It does not work. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just background some information here for the audience because you've used this term a couple of times. I'm not sure everyone will understand it, but you're talking about closed versus open skills. I think there's an extremely important distinction. Um, so can you break down uh, – you know what that generally means and how you're using it or, or how that applies in your context. So it's basically a, cl a closed drill is, is, is basically pre-planned. You know, you, you know where you're starting, you know where you're going, you know exactly what you're doing. Where an open is just, it's chaotic. It's free flowing. It's, it's, it's basically, you know, we're, we're keeping that, that uh, representative information, that movement information coupling, that perception action coupling 
um, is there and it's not taken out. So that's basically the main the main difference between you know how I use closed in 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 an open environment. Yeah, yeah, we like uh, I like to use a gymnastics tumbling run as an example of a closed thing, right? You have a very specific routine in mind and you have to execute it exactly. Whereas, um, you know, a uh, a a uh, a um, punt returner in the NFL is engaged in a totally open. Uh, open skill generally, at least after a, after a couple blocks. Uh, I think it's interesting though, because there's generally a little bit of a, more of a spectrum there than I think the people might realize. So like, uh, you know, rugby, for instance, super free flow, right? There's not too many set plays. Whereas in football, uh, you have set plays. So there's a, there's a pretty clear constructed intention that goes into the play, but then there's a huge amount of read and react that has to go on in, in play. Exactly, um, yep. So you have a, uh, you have a little bit of, of both there. Um, I also think like, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, trying to articulate the kind of the point. See, I view this idea of aliveness that comes out of martial arts and I'll, I'll break that down in a second as being very, aligned with constraints led and, and somehow also being aligned with why parkour athletes have really succeeded. Um, but in parkour, a lot of it is, is pre-planned, right? It's, it's, it, it is closed in a sense, but it's a problem solving activity because you're going out and exposing yourself to a new set of obstacles all the time. So if I do a vault, right, or a movement skill, and it's exactly the same box, the same environment every time, there's very little, new information that's attuning me as an athlete to understanding my environment. But if I go and do the same vault um, in lots of different circumstances with lots of different demands on me, that's more open, but it's still not open in the sense of like having that read and react mm -hmm. aspect where you're, uh, you're getting out of that volitional mind and into, um, into just reactive. So uh, that's just something I've been thinking about a lot. And I think it's a really important distinction. I wonder if you've, if you play with that as like a spectrum as well. Yeah. I mean, so again, to give context, a lot of my athletes, hockey, basketball, lacrosse, soccer. Um, so it's just, there's that, a lot of it is just free flowing. A lot of it is, um, problem solving a lot of it is um you know that team interaction um so i i have explored i mean i've tried so many different things because i'm constantly trying to tinker and experiment and try to find the right you know right piece to the puzzle so to speak but um but yeah we i've taken um and the most interesting thing and that's why i was excited to you know jump on you know this call with you uh is selfishly for me because I, I do a lot of reading of Keith Davids and he's been talking about recently or maybe within the last year or so talking about parkour athletes and talking about um, the importance of taking some of these um, ideas and applying it, you know, into, into the, the team sport setting. Um, and so that's where some of these plyometric ideas creating different, um, different box heights, different spacing, different surfaces, whether it's angled, whether it's, uh, 
you know, uneven, whether it's really soft, whether it's hard, but taking, taking some of these ideas um, and putting my athletes into them to allow them to explore, to allow them to take risk, to allow them um, to understand that, okay, this is going to be an awkward position, but you, you can, we're developing the self-organization um, in these really unfavorable and most coaches are like, nope, I am not going to put my athletes into something like that, where I kind of go the other way saying, hey, if this is potentially could happen, you know, on the court field or ice, my, I need, my athletes need to experience this. They need to be exposed to this. Um, so it'll be interesting to, as we continue this dialogue, the different how you, uh, you know, train parkour for the parkour athlete, yeah. because I think it's fascinating. And this is something that I need to do a better job of, of connecting to nature and getting athletes out of the shoes, getting them grounded into the into nature using the different elements. Because I think that's a missing piece in what I am doing. Um, because we will set it up like we'll use plyo boxes, we will use um, you know different different uh, angled boxes and stuff like that. But taking them into you know into a, a forest with a hill where they got to jump from rock to rock, um, I think that stuff is fascinating. I think that there is so many valuable skills you know processes that that can be applied to the sporting world have you ever seen um there's a video on youtube of the polish wrestling team i believe from like the 1960s <clears throat> and uh in the video they have them basically doing parkour in the woods so like there's there's a you know they're they're doing cleans and but they're also doing like front handstrings back handstrings flips in a gym um, and, uh, and then they're out in the woods, just running and jumping over logs and doing plyometrics on like, yeah, off yeah. of like stumps, like dropping off of a stump and jumping up onto a stump. And it was cool. Cause it was like, this is pretty much what, what we're doing, right? We're, yeah, we're trying yeah, to yeah. put these things together. Uh, so that's, it's really cool. It was, it's interesting because, um, right before we got on this call, I was doing some background information on you, trying to try to read up so I could, you know, really understand your perspective. And <clears throat> I was reading you talk about Keith David uh, in, in one of your interviews with Simply Faster. And he was talking about these plyometric uh, courses. I was like, man, that sounds like parkour. But <laughs> I hadn't, it was my way to take some of that because again, it's logistical. I am running a business and I hate to say that because I am a coach. I am a learning designer at heart. But it is. It's got to work logistically. Um, and so I was just trying to be as creative as possible. And I'm telling you right now, my athlete, they absolutely, they can't wait to do some of these courses. And I do this from, it's more, you know, obstacle courses with the younger age. And then we'll do some more of these plyo courses with, you know, the more experienced athletes. Um, it, but it's just amazing to see, see a kid where an athlete starts and, allowing them over the course of three weeks, six weeks, three months, six months to see as they are developing together. Um, it's, it's just, it, there's so many benefits and I just wish more people can kind of get outside that traditional mindset and say, okay, how can we take some of these things and start slowly applying them? Um, cause I've it just, like I said, there's just, and I could list and list and list, um, all the benefits and all, uh, everything that we are seeing, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. I, I mentioned that like, you know, this is one of my big passions. I think that I'm writing an article right now about aliveness or constraints that approach and how they come together. And the, and the basic thesis is that traditional training 
the way that I would describe it is that we, we've been stuck in an incorrect analogy, right? We, we have, we tend to see the world through analogies and we have been stuck in the analogy of the body as a machine and the mind as a computer. And if you think about the body as a machine, think about biomechanics, you think as a mind as a computer, then it, it tends to bias you towards certain perspectives on how we acquire skills, right? So, you know, I, have you ever run into like body by science, right? Doug McGuff and that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like literally the only way that you're gonna treat the body is to try to build these physiological capacities. Yeah. And then skill acquisition is just rote memorization, essentially trying to build a motor program into your body that then you can apply. And there's, there's really no attention to the environment. And so I think what's happening now is we're just starting to kind of be able to recognize how that's limited and misguided us. And, you know, the emergence of dynamic systems theory and ecological uh, psychology gives us a new lens that allows us to treat the human being in a way that's much more congruent with its nature, right? But it, I, I started doing some research on this and it looks like constraint-led approach is only about, you know, 20 years old as far as, you know, the, the first descriptions of this as an approach that people were picking up and like taking into team sports. Yeah, and then I, I would say so. I'm not a big, and so that's, that's another thing is that I've, 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 I do a ton of studying. I do try to stay up with the current research. I'm an in, and I know a lot of people, they, they frown upon the saying, but I'm an in the trenches type of guy where if, if, if something is said in the research or if I read something in a textbook that goes against what I am seeing, and it, but what I'm seeing is positive, I'm sorry, I don't care. It's working for my, I'm a resultist. That's what I care about. Um, so yes, I just think that it's actually been around longer, just people don't realize that they're using a constraints-led approach, you know, because that's the beauty of it. It's like I can take, you know, I can take experiences from when I was, a, a, you know, a young basketball player and thinking of some of my coaches saying, hell, he was doing a constraints-led approach, but he had no idea why he was doing it. He just knew it worked. He knew that it was going to allow me, you know, to, to hit a jump shot or it was going to allow me to use my left hand because I was so dominant on my right side. Stuff like that, it's just um, – it could be 20 years, but I think that it's been way long. I think just people just don't realize that they're using it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's been articulated in a specific way yeah. for some 20 years. But yeah, yeah, yeah. The great coaches have intuited this approach uh, and often been, you know, arguing against or ignoring the evidence uh, because they could just see that it didn't work, right? <clears throat> so I, I always – I'm always interested in people who, who are – evidenced not evidence-based but evidence-informed because I think when you you it's very easy to get lost in the propositional knowledge of about something and you can you can digest that stuff forever and you're never going to be good at coaching or moving you have to get in the trenches and do the thing um, and often there's more there's more information right just like there's more information in the task than in the drill there's more information in the task of coaching than there is in reading about coaching 100 percent yep um, so, so, so anyways, I, I, I was, so let me explain a little bit about aliveness. I, I was talking to you a little bit about this before we got on the call, but, um, here's an example of like an, a constraint and an idea of, I think perceived constraint led and is very aligned with it. Uh, Matt Thornton 
is the founder of Straight Blast Gym, which is Conor McGregor's gym for people in the audience. Uh, that's It's an affiliate in Ireland. His gym is in Portland. Uh, but Randy Couture, Matt Lindland, guys like that trained out of his gym. He was a, a Straight Blast, refers to the chain punches of Wing Chun, right? That's where they started. He was a Jeet Kune Do guy. Um, he was exposed to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, got his ass handed to him, realized there was something that wasn't working in JKD. So he got into jujitsu, and that's his kind of base art, but he also started bringing in the kickboxing, the Muay Thai, the boxing, um, the wrestling. And he recognized that essentially all of the martial arts that worked in application had the same characteristic, which he called uh, aliveness. And he described that as having to deal with an enemy's, uh, with an opponent's energy, timing, and rhythm, right? Uh, another way that I like to think about it is just that every martial art that works is based around playing a open free play game against a resisting opponent. And if you look at what, what what's happening with guys like yourself are doing constraint led in type of approaches in team sport, you're essentially doing the exact same thing because uh, martial arts is player versus player and team sport is player versus player. The techniques that are allowed and the things that you do are slightly different. But fundamentally, you have to attune the information of how another player is moving, right? Yeah, and yeah. so the, the environment in which you express a punch in martial arts uh, or a throw in martial arts or a change of direction in uh, team sport ha always has to have that attunement with an opponent. Um, and so, so, I, so the way that I see it, it's like you, you have – mixed martial arts, which just showed that all these traditional approaches to martial arts just didn't really work. And those traditional approaches kind of have the same mindset as the traditional approaches to like team sport training. Um, and then the same, I look at this also with, uh, with parkour versus like track and field and gymnastics. Traditional, so I've been involved in parkour for 15 years. Parkour has been outside of France for about 19 years, really recent, right? In traditional gymnastics, you're practicing rote routines, highly closed behavior. Right? In track and field, mostly just rote behavior. In a very, very non-variable environment. Parkour all of a sudden is all about exposing yourself to a huge amount of variability where you try to address these fundamental human locomotive skills. Um, and what we see now is that the best parkour athletes are competing, are, are throwing skills that would be rated an E in gymnastics when they do free running. So uh, the, the scale of points goes up to an F, but basically almost all of the top athletes only compete E-level skills. So that means that guys are doing triple backflips, they're doing double twisting, double backflips, um, and double front flips and things like this in the parkour community where they're not operating in a gym with a stable environment, with optimal landing services, with everything, which is extraordinary. And then it's harder to get a, a clear, clean comparison with track and field, but what it looks like to me is the best parkour athletes now are, run, are jumping about 20 foot gaps, which um, they only have like usually six to nine steps to run up versus the 19 steps that a track and field athlete would have. So if you, if you run, if you uh, like, if you take a, if you account for the pit, right, and being able to land on your ass, and you account for the longer run up, I think this is getting to like ninety percent of what we're seeing. That's my guess, right? I'm trying to, to track that down. Yep. So this is an extraordinary thing. It's extraordinary because this has happened in 
in such a short time with an athlete pool that has no coaches, right. That starts relatively late in life. And that, uh, um, that has no support institutional support system at all. Yeah. And, and so what I think is the fundamental insight across all of these is essentially how getting lots of information a wide variety of information allows the nervous system to become, to become a more robust problem solver. Our body craves it, man. Yeah. 100%. So that's, uh, that's the thesis that I'm working on right now. I just wanted to throw it out to you. I, I mean, yeah, no, I think it's, I think, I mean, that's, I mean, not to that extent where I have, I, that's what I'm seeing too, man. It's, it's, it's just that it's that individual in the environment in that interaction process and how we can, positively or negatively you know and so coaches can be great you know we can be absolutely we can really really help an athlete but like we talked about we could also also go the other way um and a lot of coaches so how i view myself i I, i'm there to assist the athlete i take a back i'm in the back seat i'm not even in the front seat i'm not i'm not in the i'm not the front seat passenger all right those are the sport coaches all right, I'm taking a backseat, and I need to do whatever I can to assist to make their, you know, whatever goals, whatever their potential may be, that pinnacle of their career might be. I'm going to do everything I can, you know, to help them. Or it's just biomechanics, or it's just the physic, you know, the physical side of things. Um, it those things really they're important, but it's not the end all be all um, to athletic development. Um, and I just think that if we can get more, if we can get more messages across, uh, if we can share more from guys like you and your background, you know, guys like me and my background and take from un- other industries and kind of, you know, and kind of take the same principles. I just think that we're going to do so much more justice for these human beings. Cause that's the thing is that, you know, and I don't mean to go on a tangent, but it's like, I always get parents coming in saying, my, my son is a basketball player. My son is this. And I always stop them. And, and it, whether they're seven years old, 15, 18 years old, your son is a human being. Your daughter is a human being. And that's what we're going to focus on first. All right. So it just, it blows my mind, whether it's my team sport athletes, whether I got figure skaters, cheerleaders, gym, gymnasts, um, uh, swimmers, downhill skiers, we're all human beings. All right. And we are designed, you know, to do all of these different, you know, these skills. Um, and like you were saying, I just think that there is so much value, not just from the physical, but psychological, emotional, social. It's, there's just so much value in, in encompassing all of this and taking it into consideration with your, you know, with if you want to call it your training program, your practice design, your learning design, everything you just stated, it, it fa- that fascinates me. And like I stated, that's what I'm trying. I want to figure out a way, you know, that it works within my setting, but I want to get doing more outside type stuff. So I just think there's a ton, a ton of value with it. A ton of value. Dude, I'm excited. You got to come out. Come, come I, join me. I know, man. I know. Uh, I, I would love, and that's the thing is like, cause it's just getting, I, I don't see many coaches kind of taking, you know, doing, and I'm not saying I invented this, but I don't see many sport coaches, uh, sport prep coaches, you know, taking some of these parkour ideas or taking some of these, um, 
unorthodox, if you want to call it that, you know, theories and ideas in applying it, you know, to a developing athlete. But I just think that it's, it's, if we, as coaches, if we don't get out of our comfort zone, if we don't put our ego aside, you know, it's so easy. And I tell this to parents and other coaches all the time. It is so easy to get a, a kid stronger, faster, you know, change their body comp. Anyone can do it. That's why there's a million sport performance gyms in Massachusetts alone. You know, in my town, we have six of them. You know, it's just anyone can open it, uh, you know, open one up and develop an athlete from that side of things. But what about the other, you know, systems? We are complex subsystems of subsystems of subsystems. Um, and I just think that we're missing, a lot of people are missing the boat. But if we can take from parkour and from some of these other, uh, uh, the sport, it's just, there's a lot of value in making these connections and connecting the dots. Um, and I don't know if I was far off with doing some of these plyo courses, but when I heard Keith Davids mention that, it's just, I was like, oh my gosh, how did I not think of this? And so that's when I started to do, you know, started to create some of these different plyo courses um, and the next, and then hopefully, because right now we still got about a foot of snow out and it'll be kind of tough because it's iced <laughs> over to do some jump and bound and hops, which I'm not opposed to it yet. Cause I got a group of athletes that will do anything I want to do. That um, Polish video there. It's in the snow. Cause I actually do close to the gym. We have a hill that's it's forest. It's got, you know, logs, trees, different safe rocks. I think there could be a ton of, uh, yeah. a ton of value to that. So no, man, I just, I, I, I'm really, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I'm passionate about it. And it's just, the more we can have these dialogues, it's just it, the better our, 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 uh, our clients, our, our athlete, it's, we'll better serve them. Um, and that's the main point. That's why what we do, what we do is to help, you know, is to, is to provide that, you know, whatever assistance we can, you know, and that's what it's all about, man. So I wanted to back up to something you said a second ago that really, that I really like. You said, you know, the athlete that comes in is a human. And uh, like, you know, Portal said something I really like. He said, you know, you're a human first, you're a general mover second, and you're a specialized mover third. And, uh, you know, that like the big, one of the central principles of our brand is humans have a nature, right? There's a, there's a, there's a set of nourishments that you need as a human being to optimize your function, right? And those nourishments are the things that we evolved with. That's climbing trees and running and jumping and climbing. It's the stuff that every little kid wants to do, right? Like that, kids want to do that because the kids who wanted to do that survived well as humans in the past. So they attune themselves to their environment. Yep. Um, within the perception action coupling kind of approach uh, or the, the thinking about it, let me back up even further. Often all of these conversations around physical culture are oriented towards the idea of the specialist athlete as the output, right? So I study movement so that I can make a better football player. Or I study movement so I can make a better basketball player. And when we take this approach, you know, there's always the question of, is this going to transfer, right? Why would I waste my time with that? Because, <clears throat> you know, how do I make it as specific as possible? But most of the people that we work with are not going to make it to the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, right? Exactly. And, and, and so it seems like it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the wrong way to think about this stuff. We should be thinking about how do we prepare the best human? Yeah. And then how do we use that as a base 
to take those who have special abilities in specific areas into a, into a, um, you know, into success in the NBA or NHL or whatever it is. And so sometimes when you listen to this kind of perception action coupling literature, it's, it's, it gets very much about like, you have to do stuff that's as specific as possible. Whereas what I see with what you're doing, it's like, well, you're, you're doing, um, two V one tag games, uh, maybe even over obstacles, uh, for hockey players. Yep. I'm curious to hear you talk about how you see this, this, my, the way that I see it is there's, there's information that helps the athlete become a better problem solver in general that they can then apply specifically. And as they widen their base, they get better. But there is, there's always the potential that you're, you're, um, you're taking away time or physical energy recovery that could be spent on something that's highly specific to whatever task they're doing. So how do you look at that balance and how do you, uh, how do you see it playing out in the athletes you work with? Yeah. So obviously it depends on the the time of year. It depends on, there's so many different, you know, variables that I take into consideration. Uh, But again, it's just, we are human beings. And in my opinion, what I've been seeing is that if I can provide these athletes as many experiences as possible, and yes, it's not a tech from a, from a, Technical term standpoint of representative learning design, yes, they're not on the ice. Or, yes, they don't have a basketball. But in my opinion, when we keep that coupling, all right, where we have that intention, whether you're on the offense or you're on a defense, you have the intention of whatever whatever the task might be. um, That's where, in my opinion, that's where the magic happens. That's where – so – just to give more context, we don't – so a lot of sport uh, prep coaches or SSC coaches, they'll teach, like, positions. They'll teach technical models. Yes, I understand and I completely agree there are, you know, biomechanical truths. And there are laws that we are going to follow. But instead, we think of it more as a bandwidth. And we teach more from, uh, from a print, uh, more of a principle base. Um, that's what we're trying to teach. And that's what we're trying to teach in our different – whatever it is, 1v1s, 2v2s, 2v3s, 3v2s. And when I'm stating that, that's the number of defenders versus the number of offense. Um, because the more people, all right, you, 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 know, you, you, uh, you put into this environment, the more information uh, the athletes have to attune to. And, in my, and that's just where a lot of, you know, you might see some of these coaches where they'll do 1v1s, which are great, but then that's it we want to take it to another step where it's like, yes, okay, we're not on the ice. Okay. We're not on the court. We're not, you know, using sports specific implements, but they are in a five on five. They're on a three on five. They're, they're going to see that human to human interaction. They're going to see, in my opinion, representative information um, to box that at any at any moment when they're playing their sport, if they need to do something, they have the experience, they have, uh, the uh, attunement to the information of person to person that hopefully will give them the success to hit the space, to close the space down, to score the goal, to get the rebound, to do these different things um, uh, in, the, in the sporting environment. Um, so, because then the other thing too is that I'll have hockey athletes, but also I will have a gymnast, cross player, I will have a basketball player, I will have a baseball player, I will have all these different, um, you know, 
sporting backgrounds all in the same group. And I think it's fantastic. Honestly, especially with the age I work with, would I do this with an NBA player? No. Am I going to do this with a developing athlete? 100%. Because not only, again, the physical, the psychological, the social, the emotional, you're getting all these different people together. And it's fascinating to see how, especially when we do team, you know, type situations, it is fascinating to see them problem solve. It's fascinating to see how the, you know, affordances, shared affordances, how these change, these, uh, you know, opportunities for action change. It's, it's, it's just, it's something that in my opinion is just missing um, from a lot of uh, developing athletes programs. The question for me is always in, the, in this, this idea of balance, right? Like you said, you wouldn't do it with an NBA player, but you would do it with a developing athlete. I'm talking about, I wouldn't mix sports. Yeah. Okay. So you, you broke up for a second there. You wouldn't mix sports with an NBA athlete. I w- yeah, I, I'm just saying that I wouldn't have – I wouldn't have oh, – I wouldn't have them working like this at the higher level when they're at the top, top skill level. I would not necessarily say, hey, okay, I'm going to have on a consistent basis uh, where it's more performance-related. I won't have, let's say, a tennis pro with an NFL athlete or something like that. With a developing athlete, I think that mixing them uh, – because we only think about the physical and now in the importance of the psychological, what about the social, the emotional, all these other, you know, systems that we just don't, you know, as coaches, we don't really think about, but play a huge role in, in skill adaptation. Yeah. One of my, so one of the areas that I think that everybody in the sports performance arena, everyone who's working with athletes needs to study is play research, right? Because I think what play, uh, we play these games because they're fun originally. Right. And, and if we don't understand what makes them fun, we don't understand what motivates athletes. I think that's the biggest problem that we have. Like, you know, um, the sports performance world isn't exactly the fitness world, but they're obviously interlapping uh, or overlapping. And in the fitness world, we have something like a $30 billion industry. And, you know, obviously we have the least healthy, least fit, weakest set of human beings that have ever walked the planet. It's like something's wrong. And I think fundamentally what's wrong is that we don't take seriously the idea of the emotional context and motivation, right? There's, there's things that people love to do and there's ways to interact and ways to structure things that are inherently super engaging and fun. Um, And, you know, a lot of this stuff that, that, that we think of as, you know, developing the right biomechanics or the right VO2 max or, or some of these very abstracted out physical qualities ends up becoming, um, I think of it as industrial drudgery. It's like we're, we're, apl- we're applying a factory model to human performance, right? Yep. You run on a treadmill, right? You're, yep. you're a cog in the machine, literally. Yep. So I really like that you're, 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 you're talking about that, that psychological aspect in the, and I think, at all levels, it's really important, right? When, when you're working with kids, obviously, if, you, if you're giving them drills that make them bored, uh, you're just not gonna get very good results. You're not, gonna, you're not gonna get much done. Yeah. Especially with kids, especially with kids in this day and age that are sitting in a chair for you know, six, seven hours, however long the school day is, um, where they're not, being, they're not allowed to express their creativity uh, through movement because they get they have PE once every two weeks. They might go to recess, but now in New England, it's snow outside. So, hey, kids can't go outside because they're going to get hurt. Uh, so it's everything is indoors. Everything is in front of computers. Everything is, you know, you got iPhone in your left hand. You got an iPod and uh, iPad in your right hand. 
and it's like where where is the just getting outside and moving and it's uh you take that and then you say hey i want to do a skips i want to do you know i want you running 10 yards two point stance we're going to work you know on shin angles and we're going to work on force application we're going to work on this with an eight-year-old you are you are going to lose them when on the first word and so that's a big thing where it's you've got to get them engaged and the thing that most people don't understand they they miss they think it's just chaotic and nuts there is a ton in my opinion with how i do it there is a ton of preparation to organize to plan to think of all these different potential scenarios and whether it's positive or negative you know to come up with some of these different you know uh learning environments it's not just something oh hey we're just going to do whatever i think that there's a ton of value in that where kids need to be doing that you know on their own and that's something that's interesting that i'm starting to do because in my opinion if you truly want free play me or you we can't be in the vicinity we need it's just the minute we're there we're look as an authority so what i'm trying to change the perception in their minds that okay when we're doing this um I'm more, and I, I don't, I don't like to, because they don't understand what a facilitator is. But I'm more of a teacher. I'm more of a, a, a coach of movement to them, because even the word teacher to them, they think of what's going on in school. So you got to be very careful with kind of how you, how you want to name yourself and how you want to, you know, how you want them to, you know, view you. Um, but the big thing is, I'm trying to promote them so that when they go out, when they go home, I see them. If I'm lucky with some of these kids, I'll see them three hours out of the week two hours out of the week, if I'm really lucky, maybe four hours out of the week, there is a ton of extra time where I'm trying to promote, okay, you, your brother, okay, you live down the street. All right, guys, meet up, go do something. Go pick, pick one thing, pick a ball, pick something, go and play, make your own rules, make your own games, do these type of things. Um, Cause I don't care any, if, 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 if I am standing there, they are going to be, and that's the biggest thing is that, and it's, 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 uh, it's definitely, it takes some time with newer athletes, but for example, I might just put out a dodgeball and say, go mm -hmm. and see what they do. New athletes, they will stand there and they will stare at me where athletes that have been with me. Okay. They might go, they might start playing, you know, dodgeball. They might start playing, you know, hot box. They might start playing some of the games that we've already created and they might put their own little rules on them. Um, but my main focus, especially with the younger age, is that I want them to start applying this on their own. Because when I'm not there, I think that there's going to be so many more, you know, valuable skills and processes will be developed. Um, but that's just a constant battle I'm dealing with right now, uh, especially with the younger age. Because everything is from, from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., everything is structured. You know exactly what you're doing here, 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 here. That the, the day of, okay, we get off the bus. You know, we, we, we throw our backpack down, we might eat a quick snack and we out the door and then we know we got to be home once that sun is going down. Um, those days are gone, man. They're completely gone, at least from where I'm. Where mm -hmm. I'm I mean, I think it's probably less gone in like the more rural parts of like the center of the country. But, you know, I'm in Seattle. It's the same. We have ultimate bulldozer parents out here. So this is a huge passion of mine that you've touched on as well is, you know, the necessity of unstructured play for children. And, and how it, it's so critical for the development and we're just completely missing the boat um, right now. So, uh, you know, I think it's beautiful if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to facilitate and make space for that in your facility. I was listening to, um, to Jeremy Frisch, um, who's another guy who's kind of in this arena. You still there? Yeah, who, uh, yeah, I'm here. yeah. yep. And uh, 
and he was talking about like, you know, he'll have the kids come in and they'll set up their own game and he'll just ignore it and just be like, well, you know, they're getting all the things that I want them to get. So I should just, just leave it alone. And it happens. I think that's beautiful. And I think it's, I think it's a really challenging thing for a coach to, to accept because, you know, you know, you're, you think you're getting paid to give them the information, give them the teaching. Right. But sometimes what they need most is for you to just bugger off. 100% man. And I make that very clear to my, the parents and I am as transparent and I tell them right from the start, when you sign your kid up, this is not your traditional strength and conditioning program. And I want to make sure everyone's on the same page because there's going to be times where if you're watching and I'm out there and I'm not saying anything, and I'm literally just watching, I might step away even further. There's a reason for that. All right. And so, cause a lot of these times, like you said, you said my service, uh, that I have to be telling Johnny, you need to have your knee here. You need to have your arm here. You need to be doing this. When in reality, it, he doesn't need any of that. He needs to be exploring. He needs to be put in these different environments. He needs to be challenged by a kid that's faster than him. He needs to be challenged by a girl that can out jump, whatever it may be. He needs those experiences. And the minute I say something, I'm destroying it. I am absolutely destroying it. Uh, oh, yeah, I agree, man. I agree. Yeah, I think as a young coach, I almost coached like I was paid per word, right? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I never heard that. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, here in, in – in, so I have three young children, right? I have a seven-year-old, a five-and-a-half-year-old, and a, uh, and okay, cool. a two-year-old. And we're lucky enough that we have a pretty similarly minded family that lives just across the uh, street that has a, a seven year old and a four and a half year old. Cool. And so we, we have an open door policy in both houses. So the kids can just come over and then they, and then like at five years old or five years old, we are, our school is just, is just like two blocks down, but we're the only family that lets our kid walk to school on her own. Right. Yeah, but they walk to school on their own. They go to the playground on their own. And, and like, we're trying, we're trying to cultivate and create community where these kids get the chance to just go organize play. So if the, if the neighbor girl or boy is over and we're going to go to our parkour class or our, our, our evolved new play class, I should say, um, on Saturday, it's like, I'll take all the kids and I'll just dump them in the park and let them play and be like, okay, be back here at, uh, um, at this time, right, or come check in, on, uh, check in on us, make sure you can see us, and just give them the space to do it. I think that this is, you know, I think there's a number of reasons why athletes are, well, I think that it's clear that athletes are getting injured much more frequently at the highest levels of sport, and actually at all levels of sport, right? You see 11-year-olds getting Tommy John. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yep. I read once that the, that the, the ACL tear rate in the NFL had tripled between like 2000 and 2015. Um, I talked to Michael and, uh, and Patrick Ward as a sports scientist for the Seahawks. And he said, it's, you can't really say that because none of these teams will release the data to you, but it sounds about right. That's what they said. So that's, a, that's a plausible level. Um, I remember when Elton Brand tore his Achilles tendon, it was yeah, oh, yeah. a freak injury that you never saw. And now it feels like you see people tearing their Achilles tendons all the time. And it's like, we're, we're creating the most powerful and explosive athletes. You know, they can jump higher, they can run faster, they can lift heavier. Yeah, not robust and resilient though. <laughs> no, no. And I think that this is a huge part of it. We need to bring back unstructured play. Uh, so that, yeah, I just, 
loved what you said there and wanted to, to share my own ideas there, I guess. Yeah, I love it, man. That's awesome. But when yeah. we go into, let's, let's talk a little bit about the structured play, right? Like this is yeah. one of the things that if you take, you know, essentially, I think of the universal human athletic blueprint. This is an idea I'm creating. If you, if you take parkour, you take mixed martial arts, you take team sports, if you have the abilities that we see in across all of these, this is essentially the human athletic blueprint. And a natural athlete, when people talk about a natural athlete, it's just someone who has a lot of experience about picking up all the different pieces of these different things. And every kid, essentially every kid, given access to a diverse environment with lots of things to play with and a well-socialized um, play group, a diverse and well-socialized play group, is going to explore all of these things inherently. Right? They're going to locomote themselves through the environment in whatever ways are available. So, you know, they're not going to ice skate in Los Angeles necessarily, but if, if they live in Massachusetts, they're going to start ice skating, right? Um, they're going to swim, they're going to run, they're going to climb, they're going to jump, they're going to throw and catch and hit things and strike things and manipulate things. And they're going to play games that involve collision, grappling, striking, moving each other around. It's like, that's, that's what we should be as a human being. Um, but here's the problem, right? If, if you come to me and you're 34 years old and you've never done any of this, you're a poorly calibrated athlete, right? I, I read this research on, on dogs that struck me. Really, I thought this was such a key insight. If you take a puppy um, and you're playing with the puppy, the puppy's gonna bite you because biting is a critical dog skill, right? If you punish the puppy every time that it bites, you will actually create a more dangerous dog, a dog that's more, far more likely to be a fear biter and a dog that has no bite inhibition because it's never been given the opportunity to calibrate its bite. On the other hand, if you keep roughhousing with that puppy, but every time it bites you too hard, you just say, ouch, and deny the puppy play, the puppy learns to control the strength of its bite. And now it has a soft mouth. Yep. And um, when we, we get now like a 13, a 13 year old kid who's got no physical background at all. He's like that puppy that was denied the access to bite. He's got no calibration of his physicality. I, uh, I had an athlete who came to work with me once who was super inactive kid, you know, sees completely disconnected from his body, started playing mirror's edge, decided he wanted to do parkour, comes in, sprains his ankle. By the end of the day, he's walking on the ankle. It's not a severe ankle sprain. It's a level one ankle sprain. But it's so painful and he's so unfamiliar with pain that he goes into shock, right? And we have to treat him for shock. Yeah. It's like we, we have created people who are so poorly physically calibrated that without assistance, they could die from a mild ankle sprain. It's crazy, man. <laughs> it's crazy. So as much as we need to create this unstructured play for children, also, as educators, we need to be able to ask, how do we help them learn to calibrate behavior? So that when we let them wrestle, nobody gets hurt and they don't overwhelm each other and get scared and be unwilling to come back to the wrestling. Right? If you're gonna play collision sports, right? We're doing, you know, like right now, we're working on like some games where we're doing tackle, parkour, football. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, cool. So, uh, so like you gotta be able to hit somebody take a hit and also know how to calibrate your hit. So you're not blowing the guy up and you're going to drive him into a tree branch or root. Yep. Yep. So I'm, I'm curious, 
it looks to me when I, when I watch your stuff, like you have a very sophisticated way of designing the game. So it's got an optimal set of degrees of freedom. I'm curious to hear your perspective on how you're looking at that. How do you design games so that people can start to be exposed to all these open skill things in a way that is appropriate for the athletes that you're working with? Yeah. So basically it's, it's, it's the idea. Uh, <clears throat> so we have instructions. So we make sure, and obviously, again, it depends on the level, but the younger, let's just say the younger athlete, my younger athlete, seven, eight, nine, 10, yeah. 11 years old. Um, so they, they understand instructions. So we have very basic instructions. And depending on where we are in the, in the session, we'll dictate, do I give them more instructions or do I give them less instructions? Um, and that's really dependent on, you know, where we are in the training session. But the whole idea is just cultivating this idea of safe uncertainty understanding you know it's i want you guys to explore i want you guys um to to try these different things and it's okay if you fall it's okay if you bump each other it's okay um if you make a mistake it's oh there is no negative consequences but if these instructions aren't meant. So if there is a situation where I'm seeing and I'm watching and they're, they're kind of on that fine line, I will inter I will intervene and I will say, Hey, I'll bring the whole group together. And I'll say, Hey, 15, 11 year old hockey athletes that have only played hockey all their life. Anytime you put them on dry land and they interact with each other, they are going at it. They are grabbing each other. They are, it's, it, it's going to, it's going, it, <laughs> they're going to the ground every single time every single time so I want to explain to them just in, in obviously very very layman terms understand the importance of these different you know spatial temporal scale these different skills um but we all have a common goal so basically anytime I it's just it's a fine line if I see someone fall and he gets down I might be there right there I'm not gonna poach him in the sense of okay you need to do this better I'll say hey hey Jack get back up good job good job get back in there any type of kind of like motivation type stuff, especially with the younger athletes. But there's that fine, there's, there's always that fine line. And cause I get, we, I'll get this question a lot with some of these type of things. Um, there's just that fine line. And we just got to make sure that these athletes we're all on the same page. Okay. That we have the same expectations, no matter the age. Okay. Everyone's accountable. Um, and we're here, you know, for the same goal. We're all here for the common reason and we're, and it's about having fun and the learning um and the, yes is there times where things get close 100 percent. but in my opinion that's where i just think that you know i have done a decent amount a decent job where i'll step in i'll say hey this is what we need to do and if there is an issue if i had to take it a step further where maybe you know that there's some uh, uh previous uh fighting or previous experience outside of you know, my facility that, that uh, kind of built it up and built it up, built it up. And then all of, a, all of a sudden, they're allowed to kind of grapple or wrestle with each other. And then it's like, oh, hey, it's free now. I can start swinging. Um, we've only had that happen twice. Um, and then, okay, then we have to kind of take it to a next step, whether I talk to a sport coach or parent. But honestly, man, the minute you, the minute you start – so for some of these grappling, some of these more uh, – really kind of, we, we call it inside the bubble. So anytime you get arm's length away, shoulder to shoulder, body to body, we call it the athlete's bubble. So anytime they're, they're doing stuff where they're in each other's bubble, we will start off with something really basic, like foot tag, like something that they, they're, they're starting to experience that. 
but there's none of that really violent collisions, violent, any type of, and I don't like to use the word violent, but there's none of those collision types uh, actions taking place so that I'm, I'm, I'm integrating them in their understanding. Okay, it's okay to be this close to someone and not get mad. It's okay to interact with, uh, with another human being in this fashion. And then we'll just slowly add another, you know, we'll, we'll add some complexity to it or we'll add another skill set to it. Um, but it's just, it's just a constant, um, it's always evolving, man. I, you know, as you know, it's just constantly, you know, trying to figure out, you know, each, at each moment and each time, what is going to be the, 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 the right amount of information or the best opportunity for the athlete to learn whatever we're trying to learn. And sometimes I'm not trying to get a shuffle out of them or I'm not trying to get uh, where the focus is on decision-making or reading body language. I just want, I want to see what emerges. Um, and it's just, so it's just constantly kind of tinkering and, and, and there's times where it works. There's times where it doesn't work. There's times where I let the athletes make the modifications. There's times where I have to, you know, intervene and make the modification. So there's not, there, it's never, okay, I do this and this happens. It's always, okay, we do this. Let's see what's going on. And it's, it's very, uh, everything is by, you know, by feel, everything is in the moment. And that's something where a lot of coaches don't like. They don't like that. Everything has got to be pre-planned. Everything has got to be, you know, you see your 16-week progression. You see, okay, from, from the second the athlete walks in to the second they leave, you know exactly every single minute is planned out. Because trust me, I grew my, – my coaching career grew in an environment like that, and it just never made sense to me. It never made sense that how, how are we going to develop athletes if we're, if we're really limiting them so much to the point where it's like, like you said, it's, we're creating fat, we're creating robots. It's a factory. It's, 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 in my opinion, it's, it's, it's doing a, a disservice to, you know, to, to, to the athlete's development. I can't remember who it was, but it was a famous general who said, no, uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, the children aren't our enemy, but I would say that no, 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 no plan uh, survives contact with the students. Right. I still like to plan. Like I have a lot of like pieces that I have in place. Like, okay. Um, but then the plan, I'm always looking for those opportunities to find something new within this. Like, oh, we're going to play this game that, that we've never done before. But I have like very specific things about like, um, you know, I won't have people doing kickboxing where they're allowed to like throw punches and kicks before I've had them do like basic, really limited grappling games. That exactly. Yep. Right. So, uh, like one of the games that we start with is um, actually like our first first full resistance game is you have the athletes stand on a line or a balance beam or a curb or something along those lines, and they grab each other's hands. So it's hand to hand. And then using just the hand, you have to try to wrestle the other person off the line. So this game is great for a lot of reasons because uh, you basically you're not going to injure somebody, right? The only, your your tool is your is your gripping hand. It's not a strike or something like that. And your target is just the other hand, right? Um, and then by limiting the uh, the the way the athlete can move by putting them on a narrow surface, we limit their ability to produce force. So they can't put that much force into each other. The thing that's really cool about it is uh, it also levels size differences to a degree because a larger athlete has a larger moment of sway. So, you know, if, if I'm wrestling with someone who's a lot smaller than me um, in general, my size is a huge advantage. But when we're standing on an elevated narrow surface, 
it's still an advantage, but it's a lot less of an advantage potentially. And so we get, we get that opportunity for a, a wider set of athletes to have success. So I think of it as like, there's the tools, there's the targets, there's the, the type of movement that's allowed. So like another thing we do is like sumo, I think is a great game because of the very constrained space, right? Like you cannot collide with someone as intensely in sumo as you can in football because there's so much less room to accelerate into them. So I'm curious whether you have a, a similar way of looking at how you break down these games. Like maybe give me an example. If you had like a bunch of eight-year-olds who had like no sport background particularly or super awkward, you know, kids who had been on their computers their entire life, yeah. you know, and you, you want to introduce them to some kind of play, but you can see that they're spastic, they're not controlled, they're not emotionally controlled. Right? Yeah. And then maybe you have a group of intermediate 10 year olds and then maybe you've got your 15 year olds who've been in your facility for like six years yeah what would be like the types of games that you would start a class on it's like the, yeah. the beginning yeah, of so, so, session yeah yeah so, so, so the first groups. yeah yeah so the first um so for the for the uh novice athlete that has no experience and then, honestly, it, it could be just, and I don't even want to say novice athlete, novice, you know, individual, novice human being will get, you know, a, a simple uh, activity. It will be basic, just a 1v1. We, so with our younger athletes, we like to do, you know, wolf, sheep, cat, mouse. We put animals to them because they can make connections. They can relate yeah, to that's it. That's great. Um, but getting that just up will we'll constraint, like you were talking about constraints. With, uh, space is a big task constraint we, we play around with and we manipulate with all levels. So we might have a really narrow space where really all they can do is go in a straight line and we might use noodles. We might use different tools, like fun, different things that they can. So it's, it's basically tag, but they have fun, different implements that they can use, you know, to, to, to tag one another. So real simple, just cat, mouse, wolf, sheep. All right. One guy goes, the other, the other individual then goes, you try to tag them really basic in the difference cat, mouse. So something very basic. I don't like to just use the word tag because tag is such a general term. There's so many different tag activities out there. Um, but like something that I use animals, they can kind of relate. We can kind of have fun with it. I can kind of joke with the athletes with it. Because um, it's, it, it's so powerful. And this might sound corny, right? But you get a kid to smile and laugh in an environment that they're very timid. They're very uh, unsure of. The minute you get them to smile and laugh, they, they, you have them. They realize, okay, this is, I'm going to be safe here. And I know it kind of sounds weird, but me being a parent too, I think that, yeah, I just think it's it's so, it's so powerful that it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just something I I take a lot of pride in. I put a lot of time in why we do these different things. But anyway, so just a basic one V one, you know, uh, tag type, uh, activity with very, very limited space limited um space where they can just move in a straight line basically a linear yeah acceleration and then also the other thing that you're doing there is by using something like a uh like a foam noodle you're limiting contact and the potential for the athletes to get tangled and yeah yeah yeah, exactly exactly it's really it's it's it's, it's got a lot of the same type of constraints as we're talking about with with my introduction to to grappling like simplified it down to a space where it's very easy for the athletes to, to be successful. And then you can handicap them really easily as well by adjusting the distances so that if there's a difference in skill level, uh, you're going to be able to. And that's the beautiful about a constraints led approach, man. It just, it allows everyone to be, to, to, to 
have a chance to learn. And yep. that's the biggest thing. In learning, again, it's not just – and obviously, I want my athletes to succeed. I want my athletes to win. I want them to have that gratification. I want them to have that dopamine hit that, okay, I did it. But they also need to have, okay, I didn't do it. Okay, I lost. And it's okay. Um, so, yeah, and using the constraints, you can go either way with that. And that's why I think it, it is definitely, especially from a team sports standpoint, with a, a developing athlete, with all different backgrounds, different skill levels, different strengths, different weaknesses, it's hands down one of the best changes I've ever made. So that would be like an introductory. The second level, um, I do it a little bit differently. So it depends on if we're going to take that same, say, 11-year-old when they first started to an 11-year-old that maybe has a year or two under the belt. Um, a lot of these activities, I try to, um, I try to place an emphasis on decision-making. Um, and so it could be anything uh, from uh, a, base, a basic one. So we might, so we might now, a 2 be 2 So we're incorporating more people, okay? Um, we have a, a predetermined workspace, whether it's small, medium, large. Um, we'll have a predetermined, and that could change rep to rep. That could change session to session. That could, that could, it could stay the same. And it's all dependent kind of on what's, what's emerging in front of me um, and what's going on. But um, we'll have a 2v2. We could potentially have four, four different size cones with four different color dodgeballs. And within this, or with two different color dodgeballs, excuse me. And with this 2v2, one team is a blue team. One team's a yellow team. So we have colors. And so they understand I'm blue team, I'm yellow team. All right, and really simple, on some type of cue, it could be uh, on the defensive step, on the offensive step, on my clap, on a whistle, uh, on whatever type of cue I want to give, the athletes start to move, and it's really simple. I could call out a color, I could show a ball color, and whatever color I show, they have to be whoever's first to the ball. They have to read, recognize, okay, where's the ball? Okay, I got to get the ball. Where's my teammate? We're now, okay, I got to pass to my teammate. I got to try to score. So we're including more skills. So it's more, you know, more motor skills, uh, multi-motor skill type stuff with throwing, catching, um, working with a teammate, um, accuracy, because sometimes we have big recycling bins, small recycling bins, different stuff like that. Um, and then the next level, I mean, hell, it, it, there's <laughs> – we have so many different uh, – 2v2, 3v3, 3v4. So for me, um, it's all about the, 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 the number of individuals in the space. Because again, I work with team sport athletes and that's how representative I can get is, is trying to get, if it's 5v5, if it's, you know, however many opponents are in their sport, uh, you know, that are participating in their sport at a time, I'm going to try to get as many athletes as I can. And sometimes we go above it. Sometimes we'll have six, six V six. Sometimes we'll have a one V five. And it's really dependent on what we're trying to do for the day. Are we trying to make it harder for the defense? Are we trying to make it harder for the offense? Cause this is something where, uh, which is different for football. Um, but I guess still at the high school level, athletes play both sides of the ball, but for basketball, hockey, these invasion, evasion sports, you have to be good at both. You have to have an offensive skill set. You have to have a defensive skill set. So I want my athletes to ex uh, explore and experience both roles. Um, and it, it's, I might make it harder for the defense. I might make it harder for the offense. I make it more cognitively de uh, demanding. I might um, really, it's, 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 it's the, the, the amount of variations is, is, is endless. But the whole idea is just putting more people 
because then, okay, we are going to challenge. If it's a small space, all right, and we have more people inside that space, you're going to be really constrained, you know, to move where if we expand and we have a full soccer field with the same amount of guys, okay, now we're going to pick up some speed. We're going to, you know, make a little bit more violent change of directions. Um, but the big thing with me um, with all this is the number of people, the size of the space, um, and then lastly, uh, the instructions. And so we will, we will either give really, really simple instructions to the lower athletes. With the older athletes, we might be very, um, we might be very specific in what we want to do. But then on another day, it might go back to a complete game where we're playing ultimate frisbee. We're playing handball. But there's that team connection. There is that 3v3, 4v4, 5v5. But it's, hey, guys, we're going to play ultimate frisbee. This is the one instruction. Go. Where on another day, where maybe it's more, you know, it's, uh, there's more constraints. There's more rules. There's more, uh, more of an, uh, an objective, a purpose that I'm trying to do. Um, and so that would basically be kind of the, the main difference between a novice and intermediate and advanced in respect to how they kind of move along in our program. Cool. Yeah. So what I hear is essentially that you're, you're adding layers of variation as well as complexity. Right. So what you're varying is the number of players. What you're varying is the uh, is the the space. And then also it sounds like you're you're creating variations in like targets and goals and like structure of the game. Yep. And one thing that pops into my head there is just I think that a lot of martial arts would, would benefit from a similar type of approach. This is something I've been thinking about. This is a lot of what we do with the roughhousing, but um, all the martial arts that work, they have that, that element of free play. But what I notice in the martial arts is that people tend to fall in love with their central game. Whatever the competitive format is, that's what they do, right? So we're going to go spar and we're going to do exactly the, the amount of time, exactly the equipment, et cetera, that we do in a Muay Thai match. Or we're going to do five-minute rounds of rolling and everything's available. Um, and so what we started thinking is, if you play more games, more variety of games, you develop an athlete who has more flexibility and ability to recognize specific situations, right? So, um, for instance, uh, I think it'd be really, like a really simple one is a time constraint, right? You, you behave very differently if you have a 30 second grappling match versus a five minute grappling match versus a 10 minute grappling match, right? Uh, optimal set of strategies is very different. And of course, when you're wrestling, it might turn out that you end up with the three, 30 seconds that becomes very, very critical. And if you don't have the ability to turn on that approach, right? If you're taking your 10 minute approach to the 30 seconds that's critical because you're tied with 30 seconds left, um, yep. you're, you're missing something. So adding that variation is hugely key. And, and you know, uh, if you're a kickboxer, spend some time just boxing, right? Like we, we do, um, you know, we have a self-defense focus, so we do bare knuckle sparring, right? Bare knuckle sparring means that we can't hit each other as hard, but it teaches you completely different things about how you use your hands and interrupt people and what strikes are available and how to keep your hands safe. Yeah. Right? But then if we add the variation of the glove, now we've got all these other things that are, that we can, these, these variables that we can start to recognize about how fast a punch can really move. Yeah. And you're not likely to break your hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we do this in race, it's the same thing. So to take it back, time constraints are so huge. Yeah. And that's something that we play, we, we use, uh, we use a lot. Um, and changing that time from a pressure 
an anxiety, a stress. That's the real reason why we use these time. We'll use the time constraints is to just put in more pressure because I got to be realistic. All right. If I want to try to put pressure on, okay, I could try to, okay, I could pay a hundred people to come watch my activities. That's not going to happen. And logistically, my budget is not big enough to where I can pay people <laughs> to come and watch, you know, the activity. So one way to increase the pressure uh, and anxiety is to say, okay, you got two seconds to do this. All right. And you're going against a faster kid, figure it out. Let's go. Um, so time constraints has been, has been very valuable for us. Um, and then also what you were talking about uh, with the variables is we do a lot of stuff, especially um, when it's warmer. So especially when I can get outside um, and I'm not, there's no snow, there's no ice, and I'm not trying to, to, to baby my athletes, but we'll do the stuff barefoot. And I don't see many people doing a, literally a legit agility activities barefoot with no shoes. And it's amazing to see, but then the minute we put the shoes on and we will contrast it, we'll have them take the shoes off, put the shoes back on, take the shoes off. And it's amazing how now they can feel the different pressures of the, the different sides of the foot. They, they, they feel the textures. They kind of understand, okay, yeah, that doesn't feel right. Why the hell am I doing it in shoes making a left cut? Why, that doesn't, that does not feel right. And so it just gives them more time to, you know, to just, it's all about experiences. I keep going back every rep. I look at every rep I'm with an athlete as a learning opportunity. And um, I completely agree with taking some of these, you know, manipulating some of these variables um, is really, you can be as creative as you want. Um, but at the same time, you got to be careful because you can't have too much going on. You can't be, you know, it's too much variability going on. It's got to be, I like to term it, uh, I think I got this from John Kiley, but it's, it's, it's focused variability where it's okay. This is what we're going to be changing. Um, and we have a, we have an objective for it. Um, it can't just, I, I just don't want to have 25 different things. We're changing constantly, constantly, constantly. Cause then the kids are gonna be like, what the hell is going on? Um, you want repetition without repetition, like Bernstein said, right? Where you're, oh, one hundred percent. you're seeing like a theme or a principle repeatedly enough that the athlete adapts on it, but you're giving them enough variation so that they get lots of different lenses on the same issue. 100%, adding the yeah. shoes on and off. So you're still doing the agility drill, but you're just seeing it in a different way. Yeah. Like we do the same thing. It's the process. It's the process of getting to that solution. And that's all I care about. I don't care what the solution is. As long as they, they're learning the principles, uh, they're having fun, um, and they're getting exposed to all these different processes and this, this attunement to information. That's what it's all about, man. Yeah. This, for some reason, it was popping in my head. The, uh, like all the, uh, all the South American uh, soccer players who almost all probably learned to play soccer primarily barefoot or the Dominican yep. baseball players. It's like these guys are some of the most amazing players you ever see. Uh, yeah. Very, I think that's great. And obviously, we do a lot of stuff barefoot. We're big on that. But Yeah, yeah. cool, cool. You know, it's the foundation of your body, right? Like, can't ignore it. 100%, man. Yeah. So uh, I, the feet are so important. Yeah. So uh, a couple of more questions. We're running uh, low on time here. Uh, yeah. Really appreciate your time. So one is I wanted to know how you introduce the moving into the bubble, right? You talked about being in the bubble with someone with collision, right? If you're working with hockey players, you're working with football players, even basketball players, like yeah. even baseball players, they all, they all have to deal with the fact that they're going to collide with someone at some point. So yeah. how do you, you know, progress someone through gaining the ability to be comfortable with collision and have like effective motor skills to sweep an arm, to, to structure their body, to take a hit? Yeah. So very simple. We do, again, it's all about the human to human interaction and we don't just do that 
with our agility training, with our, our, our problem solving activities. We do that in our pre-training. So really simple. We do a bunch of different isometrics, different positions, whether it's a split. An athlete's going to push them. They're going to perturb them. They're going to have these different perturbations. So they're getting that, okay, body-to-body contact. Guess what? You're not breaking. You're not dying. You're okay. And so then we'll take it to another level where we'll do our landing prep. So part of our pre-training, we do isometrics, and we do a thing called landing prep, which is basically really simple, in-place ankle jumps or pogo jumps. And then you drop into some type of stance, whether it's a two-leg, single leg, split squat, lateral squat, whatever stance, uh, and the options will change depending on the level of athlete. Um, but as they're dropping, they might get pushed from with a stability ball. They might get pushed with a blocking pad. They might get pushed from a hand as they're decelerating and landing. Then we'll take it to another step where then, okay, then they have to jump up. Then they might get another contact. So now not just on the deceleration, now on the acceleration or the concentric portion of the jump, now they're getting hit again. And they got to be able to self-organize in air or on the ground from a poor position to a safe position. We do it with our depth drops where we're on the box, 6-inch, 12-inch, 18-inch. Some of my guys are at 24 uh, inches now where they might get shoved off a box and they got to stick into a, a depth, like a depth drop type idea. Or they might get hit in the ground and then they got to jump, get, effect, get back into an effective position and jump back up. So more of kind of like a, a depth j- uh, jump type idea where they start on an elevated surface, they hit the ground, they get perturbed, and then they explode back up. Um, we'll take that then. Um, after uh, something like that, we will might take it to our partner reactive plyometrics where we're adding contacts through offense is the, the, the leader and is starting whether, let's just say it's three movements. We put constraints on the number of movements, the legs being used. Um, so say the offense has three movements. They're going to stay on two legs, so they're going to do some different jumping skills. The offense starts, the defense mirrors them. And as the defense goes, we have barriers that are there to either just, they hold their ground. So they're just, they're just standing there and they're like kind of like a recycling bin, so to speak, or the barriers are stepping and trying to get in the way of the defense or the barriers are stepping and perturbing the defense. So again, they're getting that body to body, peak left leg off of your strong right leg in the frontal plane, you know, tri or 3D. Um, and then we'll add it in, um, into, you know, some of our problem solving activities where we might do some basic 1v1s with the barriers and the barriers can only target the defense. We might use stability balls to start and then it's, it's, it's body to body using the hands. Uh, we might do that with athletes with noodles. Uh, uh, using noodles. Um, we do one where they, uh, uh, we play foot dag where they just hold on to a BBC. Uh-huh. The only rules they got to keep their arms straight. Um, and so it's just getting them comfortable, uh, you know, of being in each other's bubble. Um, and so if there are any more, I, I put all that stuff on my Instagram and Twitter. There's a bunch of them from all different levels, from all of our different levels. Um, <laughs> but that's a big one. Yeah, that, that's an important one. You may have seen me tagging some of my staff saying, hey, play this game with our classes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, I Great appreciate stuff. that. It's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, check out ours. We've got a bunch of fun games all along those lines as well. Yeah, so, cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So the last question I wanted to, to ask you is, you know, we've kind of spent a lot of time talking about games. One of the ideas I think about this is essentially, how do I stack more benefits into my training, right? Like, you know, if I'm going to do change of direction and I'm going to be working on it mechanically, if I can, if I can get the mechanics right and I can also get the perception right, like I should do both at once. Right? And if I can do that and attune myself to my environment and 
you know, maybe do it out in the sun and get some vitamin D, right? Like just get as many benefits as, uh, uh, you know, do it barefoot and strengthen my feet at the same time. All that stacking benefits. Now, one thing I've noticed is that it seems like there are certain things that it's really hard to replicate without just doing that one thing. And that one thing just doesn't stack that well, right? So um, in one of your articles, you mentioned one of them, which was like max speed work. Yep. So you can do chasing and stuff and it, it helps to some degree, but at a certain point, it's just like, you just have to focus on the intent to run really fast. And if you can't run really fast, it's running really fast just happens to make lots of things better in almost every athletic athletic arena. So I'm curious how you look at those things that, that where, where does it not make sense to add the perception action coupling and where do, where do you just need to put work in on something that's monostructural that's uh, you know, closed, but it's just something you got to do to be an athlete. Yeah. So for, for, so in my, and this is my opinion right now in this moment, it could change in 10 minutes, right? So <laughs> this is my opinion right now where any type of barbell movements, it's, those are closed. All right. And there, there is, there is some room where we do follow the repetition without repetition, where we will have under a certain load. So under 75% uh, of, of a one RM, we will allow athletes to try different speeds, different ranges of motions, different barbells, different foot stances, different uh, hand uh, widths, stuff like that. But traditionally the barbell, that's a close, that's a close skill. That is a closed movement. And I look at everything as a skill. So squatting, in my opinion, is a skill that I'm trying to teach, but it is a closed skill. Um, also, I think, in my opinion, I think sprinting, teaching athletes how to accelerate vertically, teaching them how to accelerate at an appropriate uh, forward angle, teaching athletes how to attain in a vertical posture with max velocity, teaching athletes how to do curve sprinting, these need to be done in a closed situation, uh, in, in a closed scenario. Um, because in my opinion that you can get stronger, you can improve your coordination. There's a lot of good things that people forget about sprinting 30 yards. Because uh, especially in New England, uh, a lot of, lot of sport performance uh, places, they might have a strip of turf, but it's very tiny. So everything is 5, 10, 15-yard sprints. Everything is acceleration-based where uh, – all the research and the, and the, and the, the coaches that I talk to, max velocity is so important. And hell, I do it. I do it with my hockey athletes in season. I had a kid last night. We were outside in 32, 32 degree weather. We were doing our flying tens with a, with a 30 yard sprint up and a 10 yard finish. So 40, 40 yards total. We did one rep. We, we really managed the volume, but he needs that max velocity stimulus. We need that speed stimulus every, you know, two to three weeks. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation, uh, yeah, how yeah. we do that. But, but sprinting, in my opinion, uh, is something that it, it needs, it needs to be closed. All right. But again, you can use a constraints led approach. You can use a repetition without repetition, uh, type setup where you can change, you can kind of change the starting stance. So for example, we might have, uh, we might have a simple 20 yard sprint. They can start two point stance. They can start half kneeling. They can start from a drop in forward, walking forwards and explode out. We can start with a bound, a three, uh, a three bound uh, uh, drop in start. We can we can change the starting stance, um, so we can follow kind of that repetition without repetition. We can use dowels, we can use med balls, we can use hurdles, so we can change the environment. So anytime we, I don't do any coaching during during the repetition. I shut my mouth. 
And what I try to do is I try to allow the, the, the environment. So how we, how we kind of organize the drill, the closed drill. Okay. Let that do the coaching. And then if athletes want to talk, we do a lot of videotaping. We do a lot of video analysis where then whether it's, and this is, this is all of my, this is all my judgment, whether we do it right away, where we give them feedback right away, whether it's time related or, related, or we might do it at the end of the session, or we might do it at the end of the week. And it's really dependent on the kid. Cause if I have a kid that constantly needs feedback, I'm not giving him feedback. He's relying too much on my, uh, on me to try to do what he needs to do. He's got to, he's got to do it himself. Um, where if I have another kid, you know, that doesn't really rely on me, but could use, okay, if we kind of fix this and I, he understands this principle and I can teach him through maybe me demonstrating or maybe me showing him a video because the beauty of what we do is that everyone is going to respond differently to different coaching cues, the different feedback, that interaction process is going to be different athlete to athlete, but also that same athlete, it's going to be different the next session I see them especially with a developing athlete. It, it's just, it's such a wild thing, um, but it's never always going to be the same thing. Um, but so sprinting, um, and I think plyometrics as well. I think getting an understanding, especially how we organize our jump train, our plyometric training, um, we have extensive. So basically where we're jumping, where it's at kind of 75% effort, it's very relaxed, more ankle dominant. So less knee bend, less hip bend. Um, and then we'll transition into more intensive where we have all different linear lateral 3D, all these different uh, plyometrics. In my opinion, if the athletes don't have the experiences and aren't competent or have the appropriate capacities with those, it, may, it does make it a little bit challenging when I do my plyo courses. That's one thing I found where if I do have an athlete that has been in a closed environment, but once again, we might put constraints on them. We will follow a repetition without repetition. So even though they know exactly what's going to happen, it's still getting, there's still variability in it. There's still that self-organization. There's still that creative thought. There's still that exploratory behavior um, going on uh, in that type of activity or in that, in that type of drill. Awesome. That was great. Um, one last one on that. What's your opinion on developing an aerobic base with the athletes and, and where you get that and how you. Yeah, I, th I think that's huge. We don't, so uh, we don't do any energy system development. We don't do any work capacity. The only athletes I do work where we do conditioning um, or work capacity where we really focus on work capacity is my college level or professional level athletes. We do it the last three weeks in the off season, everything else, is a lactic focus everything on on that power component being explosive being fast um and then that aerobic being able to repeat that ability so or agility activities that's what people don't forget that can be a great form of so a lot of people that follow charlie francis that high low uh, model you know with tempo runs we actually take the tempo runs out we will we will use tempo runs early on in the off season but we get rid of them and the rest of the year, it's all of our games. It's all of our agility activities. You can get a fantastic aerobic, uh, uh, develop an aerobic uh, base by just understanding, okay, how long is each rep going to be? How big is the workspace? How many people are in it? What are the, you know, all these different things. But the aerobic system is huge. And with my younger athletes, I place a huge premium, but they don't even know. They don't even know they're developing. Because if I told the parents, hey, we're, we're going to focus on aerobic training, they're going to think we're going out for a mile. We're going out for a mile run or we're going out this. But, you know, it's just I follow a lot of Joel Jameson's work and have taken some of his ideas in a, uh, uh, with some of his um, 
methods and parameters and have kind of make it work and has and, and tweaked a little bit, but made it work for kind of what we do with our gameplay, with our plyometrics, um, with our sled work, our and, and stuff like that. But yes, aerobic stuff is huge, in my opinion. Awesome. Well, I need to let you go here, um, but uh, I'd love, I, I want to challenge you to write a little article on how you're getting specifically the the adaptions within the aerobic uh, base within a, a, with a movement and a, like game based approach because I think that'd yeah. be something that I don't think a lot of people know about. And I think it's really valuable and be really interesting. I'm just for me personally to think yeah. about because parkour is so a lactic, right? So explosive. Yeah. And like, you know, I go into kickboxing and I'm kicking my coach across the room, like because of so much power in my hips from, from parkour. Um, but I'm gassed when I get to the end of the room. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, you know, how we how we adjust the game in order to create the adapt the aerobic adaption appropriately, uh, I think is a really, really useful thing for people to understand. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that's one thing. I, I talk to a lot of other coaches and like-minded people, and everyone always asks me to write and write and write. The unfortunate thing is I'm excuse my language, I am such a shitty writer <laughs> that it, it's very hard. I got so many ideas. I'm just such a I just got to just keep doing, keep applying in the best ways to take videos. But I do, I need to start writing more and taking some of these ideas because I got a lot of them and I got a lot of them that by having these type of dialogues, it, it's, I got more ideas now too. So, um, <laughs> which is, that's what it's about. But yes, I agree, Rafe. And I, 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 I hope to do so, you know, hopefully put something together. Um, I'm dyslexic. I'm ADHD. So I, uh, so writing is not my strong suit either, but I, I'm working on it. I'm getting a lot better. And what helps often is actually just doing like a podcast, like just, yeah. just spit all the words out and then go back, listen to yourself and then yeah, yeah, yeah. outline it. And then, shh, so a yeah, cool, little bit of, <laughs> little bit of advice there. Yeah, um, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. I appreciate this opportunity, right? Keep up the good work, man. I love the messages that are, uh, are being promoted. Um, and hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an ongoing conversation. I'd love to have you awesome. on again. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.